The sermon text for today is from Jude 14:16. It was ab also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. This is the word of the Lord. I really like that new song, preparing us to hear the word. I hope we uh, can learn that one really well. It's so full of truth and hope. Confidence in the word. Before we begin, let's bow our heads in prayer and ask that God to make these words give us life. Father, how kind of you to send the word of God into this world, that which was from the beginning. He was with God and he was God. And yet he came into this world as a man, as one of us, to bring us words of life. And now we have those words and those truths written for us to pass on from generation to generation. Would you help us know these words, that they would become our story as we embrace Christ in his story. And that through that story, God, we would overcome this world into eternal life. Amen. It's finally getting warm out, so we got fans and, a, and air conditioners on for your comfort. So hopefully we can Figure out the, the right volume for you. I'll try to speak loudly so we can all hear. If you haven't already, turn to the book of Jude. We will be diving in to verses 14 to 16. The stories we love are the stories we live. The stories we love are the stories we live. Like many children... Probably in this room, my kids love playing this video game called Minecraft. Any kids know Minecraft? There's a few, yeah, some are ashamed to admit they play Minecraft. Minecraft is kind of cool as far as I understand. It's like this immersive virtual sandbox where you get to go into this wide open world with your friends and explore this world and create in this world and even defend your creations against others or against these crazy creatures. There's very few limits to the game which allows the imagination to just flourish as they create their own stories. The, the game can become so immersive that my kids now play this story even when they're not on their iPads. When they're out in the yard, when they're in the woods, they play Minecraft. 
They talk about Minecraft when they're doing other things. When we're out and about throughout town, they notice, oh, there's a Minecraft. There's a creeper on that guy's backpack. There's more Minecraft. And just doing daily activities reminds them of Minecraft. And it's not just Minecraft or other video games. It's their favorite books or movies or TV shows. My kids love to play princes and princesses or warriors riding on dragons or astronauts flying to the moon or kings and queens of Narnia, Harry Potter fighting Voldemort, boxcar children solving mysteries. You might know some of these. I have seen grown adults at Disney World dressed up like they're Harry Potter. This is because this imaginative living is not just a unique feature of childhood, but it's the way we were all made to live in this world. God gave us his word, his Bible, not just as a list of right and wrong, do's and don'ts, some principles for you to memorize so that when you go make your own story, you can kind of do it along his path or his, with his wisdom. The Bible tells a better story of a hero who came to rescue a lost princess taken in by the dragon. It tells the tale of a kingdom shrouded in darkness trying to find its way back to the light. It's the epic adventure of ordinary people defeating, overcoming the greatest enemies. It's the journey of a lost band of brothers trying to find their way back home. It's the gripping drama of a father reuniting with his wayward son. This is the story that should captivate our imaginations, even as adults. God made us to be so immersed in this story that we begin to see it unfolding all around us and recognizing its patterns everywhere. We, get to, we are called to play the characters of the drama. We are called to battle the dragons, take great risks and make great sacrifices to overcome obstacles and achieve the goal. We solve mysteries and dodge enemy attacks. And because we know how the story ends... It keeps us focused on who the true hero of the story is and how he came to rescue us and guarantees our safe path home. This is the way Jude experiences the Christian life in this world. He was so immersed in the drama of scripture, of God's redemptive story, that he saw every single contemporary situation in light of this ancient epic tale. As he writes to this church, he's not just giving them practical tips for living and maybe some wise sayings in order to kind of weed out false teaching. He draws them into the story and calls them, warns them to contend against false narratives. That's going to be our focus today from these three verses, contend against false narratives. Jude shows us how to read our current circumstances in light of this grand redemptive narrative. And from, this verse, from these verses, we're going to try to follow his example. In verses 14 to 15, we're going to walk with him into the story's ancient plot line and see throughout this letter how Jude really is, he thinks through this lens of 
Scripture's narrative. And then he shifts in verse 16, after he quotes somebody, he shifts to verse 16, using this narrative framework to identify the story's modern villains. He says to recognize the dragons and the bad guys in the story. It's not as simple as just pointing out specific things they do or say, but he's looking at character traits that define the common enemies of the hero throughout his story. So Jude's going to show us how to do that. We're going to begin this lesson from Jude, helping us contend against the false narratives by looking at this story's ancient plot line. So if you haven't already, turn with me to 1 Enoch chapter 1. There's some giggles in there. Some of you may not realize that uh, that's not in the Bible. I'll explain that connection in, the mo- in a moment. Turn to Jude, verses 14 and 15. Jude says, It was about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, he prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on, his holy, on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that the ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So, the, the first thing you notice is that Jude quotes somebody called Enoch. It's a book that we are now familiar with that some ancient people had called, that we call First Enoch. And if you're not very familiar with your Bible, you're, and I tell you to look for that book, you're going to be looking for a long time because it's not in your Bible. Which then leaves us with a bunch of questions. Why in the world is Jude quoting him? Who is this guy? Where is this book from? Well, as Jude says, Enoch is the great, 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 great grandson of Adam. He's the seventh generation to live on earth. You can read about him very briefly in Genesis chapter 5, verses 18 to 24. His life story right there. Who is his dad? Who is his son? How long he lived? And he didn't die. He was just taken up. And that's all we know about him. Hebrews 11 tells us that he pleased God with his faithful life. That's it. That's all we know. We don't have any indication that he wrote anything down, that he had some kind of prophetic ministry. So where did this book come from? Well, it's pretty clear from research into history that the book of Enoch was written during the intertestamental period. That's, that's from the end of the Old Testament, the last prophet Malachi, 400 years of God not bringing any new words to the time of Jesus. And in between there, people are still wondering, what should we be doing? What do we do about all these circumstances, all these problems we're having? And so lots of people, faithful leaders, are trying to write these letters and stories to encourage their followers to stay faithful to God's promises in the scriptures. Some of these stories are fantastical tales that are based on the scriptures, and they're just given Old Testament names and themes in order to motivate people, inspire their, their imaginations to live out faithfulness in their lives. It's kind of like someone today making a movie based on a scriptural theme, but setting it in a modern context so you can see what, what faithful obedience looks like. 
Or maybe like the Chronicles of Narnia. Some scriptural themes in there. These, a fantastical telling with scriptural truths just to give a, a little di bit different look at our current events. So this is what Jude is doing with the letter of First Enoch and how he's going to use it. He, he's like a modern kid playing out Minecraft in his backyard. Jude was so immersed in the story of the Bible, saw it playing out all around him, and books like Enoch were just some really inspirational fuel for his imagination to help him live out faithfulness in his life, to draw him deeper into God's story. You can see throughout this letter how in, immersed into the Bible Jude is. It's like just 25 verses long, and it seems like every verse is just a quick one-off reference to all kinds of other Bible stories, right? Something happens in his life, in the church, and he's like, oh, that reminds me of, that reminds me of Enoch. Oh, and that thing happening there, that reminds me of Moses in Israel. That's, that's just like Balaam. That's just like Sodom and Gomorrah. Maybe we should learn from them. And so, he's taking these things, showing us that we ought to be saturated in the scriptures in the same way. We don't just memorize Bible verses so we can repeat them as some kind of mantra to overcome our thought patterns. We're not memorizing Bible verses so we can own somebody in some theological argument. We just know the story. We want to immerse ourselves in the plot line so that we can become like the characters and we can embrace the conflicts that we face in the same way they did or in a better way that th than they did. When life happens all around us, we know the scriptural response. When the world squeezes us, Bible comes out. And so what is Enoch trying to tell us about this ancient story. As the theme of the letter of Jude tells us, Enoch also promises that God is going to bring judgment on all ungodliness. You see the words all and ungodly four times in just these two verses. Clearly, Jude wants to emphasize that God will expose and punish every sin, every evil thought, every wicked deed. Just like he did with Israel, just like he did with angels, just like he did with Sodom and Gomorrah, just like Balaam and Cain and Korah. The judgment will be swift, complete, and final. Jude is trying to shift the emphasis of our own story that we are living in right now and lift it up into the realm of the eternal, to see it in light of all that God has done in the past, all that he promises to do in the future, to encourage us, God has control of this. But he's doing more than just telling us there will be judgment. The book of Enoch explains how this judgment will unfold. Enoch is drawing from verses in Deuteronomy, Jeremiah, Psalms, Daniel, all over the Old Testament, and he tells us, this judgment will be executed by ten thousands of God's holy ones. My question is, who are these guys? Who are these ten thousands of holy ones? Most Old Testament texts referencing this final judgment 
make it sound like they're holy angels. The angels are going to come and execute the judgment. But then there's a few other verses that kind of make us go, wait, are people, holy people going to be involved in that judgment? It's not exactly clear. Perhaps it's kind of like the story in 2 Kings chapter 6 where Elisha is standing at the, the gate of the city with the king's servant who's worried that the enemy armies are about to destroy them. And Elisha prays that the servant's eyes would be opened and suddenly he sees a vast angelic army fighting alongside of Israel. Maybe this judgment is an action executed by God's people with the strength of angels on our side. And not just in the end, but even something we're engaging in right now. Because clearly, Jude's letter is a call to us not to just sit idly by while false teaching infiltrates our church. He's, this is a call to action. Think, people. Use your brains. Judge wisely about the situation you're in. Contend for the faith. Contend for the purity of the church. Contend against those subtle sins in your heart. Contend against false narratives. We must be wise judges to look out for false teaching. False narratives that would distract us from God's promises, that would distract us from the mission he has called us to be on. We don't want to let them have any influence in our hearts. Now, as a word of caution, this call to execute wise judgment does not mean that we are called to start that final judgment. We are not to go out into the world and start calling out sinners and punishing evil and overthrowing governments. Jesus warned us in his kingdom parables that at the same time in this world, the righteous and the unrighteous will grow up alongside of one another until the end. And we will only do more damage to the kingdom if we try to pluck out the unrighteous, to go about judgment in that way. We're supposed to trust that he will separate the sheep and the goats. In the end, he will take apart the wheat and the tares. But then there's 1 Corinthians 5 and 6. Paul seems to set forward the responsibility of us to contend for the purity of the church. We're not yet called to participate in that future judgment on the whole world, but we are right now to get to work contending for the purity and flourishing of the church. We are to be judges of each other within the church and you bringing the blood of Christ into that judgment to forgive those who are repentant and to welcome them and pull them in tighter and to separate from unrepentant ungodliness. This is the kind of contending Jude wants us to be doing, immersed in this redemptive narrative of Scripture. Contend for one another while we trust Jesus to contend against the whole world. Jude starts with this vision of Enoch to shape our understanding of the world, and then he shifts in verse 16 to those in the church who may need to be removed from their positions of influence. Those who are caught up in false narratives. Those, the story's modern villains. So let's go back to verse 16 and read that one more time. These are grumblers, 
malcontents. Following their own sinful desires, they are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Jude is making a transition here. You can see he's got a quote from Enoch, and now he shifts from what Enoch's saying to what's happening in the church to address, to apply that ancient story to the modern problem. He shifts from these obscure bad guys, these ungodly people in Enoch's prophecy, to these false teachers right now. Jude repeats the word these often to to refer us back to verse 4. These false teachers who have crept in unnoticed. Remember that they are subtle. They're sneaky. It's not quite obvious who they are at first glance. They seem like really good people. But this is how you can identify them so you can separate yourself from their influence. First, he calls them grumblers, malcontents. Another way of saying that might be grumblers and complainers. Literally, the description of Israel coming out of Egypt through the Red Sea, wandering around in Exodus and Numbers, constantly complaining and grumbling against God. Despite God's abundant mercy of saving them and feeding them and promising them a flourishing life in the promised land. But they complain. They don't have enough bread. They don't have enough meat. They don't have enough water. They, they want a good place to rest. Who's going to protect them? They want milk, fruit, honey. God did promise them all of these things. But they had lost sight of that promise in light of all of their pressing physical needs of the immediate moment. This is really the core issue to Jude with these false teachers and all the false ideas you might be tempted to follow. They're so focused on here and now, this life, your current problems. They forget about the promises and the presence of God to come. So the grumbling and complaining is actually a little more sophisticated. When I read grumbling and complaining, I imagine my kids, when I tell them to do the dishes, and then they lay down on the floor and kick and scream, no, I don't want to do that. They don't, they don't really do that. Not anymore. These false teachers are much more sophisticated in their grumbling and complaining. It's, it's more like our political arguments about justice and fairness. It's the constant reminder that, well, your neighbors are watching or your coworker's friend's grandma is affected by your behaviors. It's the appeal to very natural human desires to eat, to be loved, to be healthy, to be comforted. Paul says in Philippians 2.14, do all things without grumbling or complaining. He's not saying we don't have needs, ignore those needs, or that we don't care about our neighbors and coworkers and grandparents. He's saying we want to show them that all of those needs will be met in Christ and ultimately satisfied in a new creation. But these false teachers are all about getting their needs met right now. Jude says they follow their own sinful desires. Again, when I read that phrase, I immediately have some, something sh- popping up in my imagination, like some blatant, obvious sin, like the guy in 1 Corinthians 5 who's sleeping with his stepmom. You're like, no, that's so obvious. Get that out of here. 
But these guys are creeping in unnoticed. So the word translated sinful desires suggests these natural desires that have become so dominant in their life. They just become these overwhelming passions that I need satisfied right now. It's like delighting in someone's beauty becoming this consuming, lustful attraction. It's hunger that turns into gluttony. It's a desire to be welcomed and affirmed and part of a family, suddenly becoming this earthly pursuit, this perverse, prideful pursuit of reward in everything. It's the gladness of wine that God gave us, turning into drunken self-medicating, or a desire to have a good place to live, turning into this desire, this growing desire to have a bigger, more comfortable home. All these things, good desires becoming disordered when they're so focused on being satisfied right now, instead of seeing them as a gift pointing us to greater satisfaction in the life to come. These teachers, they're just like those rebellious Israelites, so focused on right now, temporal issues and concerns, not the future promises of God. And they influence the church, not by tempting you with these unabashed invitations to licentiousness. Hey, who wants to get rich today? Have I got a deal for you? Hey, come up here and check this thing out. Oh, it's going to really appeal to your flesh. No, they don't do that. It's more subtle appeals to your legitimate worldly needs. Well, you need to eat, right? You need water, right? You need a home. You need protection, right? Oh, you, you really deserve a fair shot. Life's been hard for you. You know, it's your right to be free from the risk of your neighbor's unhealthy choices. You deserve to have an online experience that's free from all triggering and foolish words. These, these promises appeal to your heart because your heart has those desires. But then we get it backwards from Jesus' promise in Matthew 6.33 where he says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added to you. The reality is that only God has the ability to care for all your needs. Nobody else does. But the world will continue to make such claims, which is what Jude means by loud mouth boasters. Again, I'm, I'm confused when I read loud mouth boasters, but he says they creep in unnoticed. You, you recognize those seeming contradictions or you have those questions and that's what drives you deeper into the Bible to really figure out what does this mean? So I had to look up what does this phrase loudmouth boasters mean? The word loud here doesn't necessarily mean high volume or like boisterous and obvious to everybody. It's more this confident arrogance. They think they have the ability to control the world in a way that humanity was never really given the power to do. Other ancient writers used a similar phrase explaining their mouths speak enormous things. They make great promises that they can never keep. Aristotle spoke in the same way. The great philosopher Aristotle said, the boaster is a man who pretends to creditable qualities that he does not possess or possesses in a lesser degree than he makes out. They say how great a power, strength, wisdom they have, but they don't really have it. 
That doesn't stop him from trying. It doesn't stop him from boasting in human ability to change the world. Have you ever heard of TED Talks? There's videos online that are like 15 minutes long and they sometimes have helpful insights into how the world works and how to live a better life. Listen to what their website posts. TED is a global community welcoming people from every discipline and culture who seek a deeper understanding of the world. We believe passionately in the power of ideas to change attitudes, lives, and ultimately the world. On TED.com, we are building a clearinghouse of free knowledge from the world's most inspired writers. That's lofty speech. Interesting choice of words, inspired. Nobody on TED is talking about the Bible. We see this same kind of boasting in our news cycle every day regarding economics, epidemiology, climate change, and anyone who wants to say those things are conspiracy theories. Both sides of the argument are loudmouth boasters. We boast in our ability to control money and control viruses and control climate and control people's lives by decreeing people's behavior from far off places, whether it's Capitol Hill or some smoke-filled room. They're all loudmouth boasters. We don't really have such control over the whole world. It's like the king of Babylon in Isaiah 14, inspired by the devil. He says, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. If we have hearts that are saturated by scripture and someone boasts of their ability to control so, such big things, we can see that it's simply a demonic attempt to make ourselves like God or like the Tower of Babel. We're going to build a tower to the heavens to make a great name for ourselves. I saw a tweet recently. Well, it's my administration that's the one that solved this great pandemic problem. You did not. This is what Jude means when he says, showing favoritism to gain advantage. This means specifically that they're flatterers. They, they only do this building work in order to give themselves a pat, pat on the back for their own expertise. Just so their co-workers will respect them or people will vote for them. Again, it's this extreme focus on this life, here and now. Not even necessarily for, for financial profit, but for notoriety, for respect, affirmation, just to be known and remembered in this world. Always reminding us the world is watching. They want to be sure that they don't lose status in, light, in the sight of others. But they've completely ignored the grand redemptive narrative of Scripture, which culminates in judgment on all ungodliness. In almost everything you hear on the news, you are hearing a false narrative that we must contend against. And we contend against false narratives by immersing ourselves in the true narrative of Scripture and embracing the mission told in that story, taking on the identity of a character in that story. This call to contend against false narratives is eternally important. People's eternal souls are at stake. God has put his glory on the line. Remember, 
The stories we love are the stories we live. If you believe the wrong story, if you get excited by the wrong story, then you'll make the wrong people your friends and the right people your enemies. You'll make bad vices your identity and godly virtues an obstacle. You'll make worldly messages your soul's food and God's word is just a tool, an instrument to feed yourself the world's food. You'll make the world's call to action your own ambition and then just use God's work in his church as your cover mission, hiding what you're truly all about. We must contend against false narratives. And we do so by first immersing ourselves in scripture and second, by becoming more aware of the stories told all around us. We must immerse ourselves in the story of scripture, the story that tells us that we, all of our needs have been met by the perfect life, the sacrificial death, and the victorious resurrection of Jesus Christ. We must determine, like Paul, as he said in 1 Corinthians, to know nothing in this world except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. That is the one grand narrative that will shape how we live out every other narrative in this world. It keeps us focused not on our present needs, but on God's future promises. And of course, in order to know that story well, you then need to be reading your Bible a lot. This is the primary text that shapes our understanding of who God is, what his world is all about, and what he is doing in it. We must be in this word every day, reading it and listening to it if that's easier for you, or hearing others talk about it. Listen to more sermons. Listen to other great preachers. Have podcasts that of people talking about the scriptures. Join Bible studies. Have conversations with one another about the Bible. Join our Bible school. Redemption? No, not redemption. What do we call it? Bethlehem College and Seminary that we started. We got a new sign out. Sign up so you can be immersed in the scriptures. Or, like Jude, referencing, maybe not or, and. Let's say and. Like Jude referencing the book of Enoch. It's also really helpful to use resources that are influenced by the story of Scripture, like Scripture-filled prayer books that help your prayer life grow with scriptural truths. Or you can read catechisms to your kids at home or maybe to yourself at home to learn the big concepts of Scripture. Fill your home with scriptural music. Discipline yourself to learn old hymns and new songs that you didn't know before. Read through a children's story Bible as a family just to kind of get the grand overview. Read and watch Bible-related fiction that uses the imagination to take Bible truths and apply it in our lives. Play with your kids Bible stories so you really take on the character of the Bible, training yourself to take this identity of someone in God's redemptive story. If you're someone who has come to this church and you feel like just overwhelmed, I just don't know my Bible very well and I feel a little embarrassed to even talk about my lack of knowledge. Please come and talk to me afterwards. We want you to flourish in this story and I've got a list of resources that I am eager to get in your hands. Just come and talk to me and I'll get you what you need. 
I want you to be able to immerse easily your family, your own home in the narrative of the Bible. When you do that, you'll better be able to understand and recognize the modern villains of this ancient storyline. You'll be able to contend against the false narratives all around us. We are always taking in stories, every moment of every day, letting them shape our lives, shape our view of the world, shape our view of one another. Think about the stories that influence you. Maybe they're the painted portraits of each other that we put on social media. Or perhaps the pronouncements of doom and gloom you hear on the news. Is it the loud mouth boasting of politicians and their promises to change your life? Or for some of you, it might be the pain and the shame of your past that's constantly telling you today that you're not worthy of God's love or that you're still in constant danger that you need to run from. It's the whispers of Satan telling you, you need to get out, you need to get away. You'll never overcome that sin, that struggle. Your marriage is too far gone or sticking it out through difficulty is too dangerous. Contend against those false narratives with the victorious story of God's redemptive work in Christ. With your heart saturated in scriptures, you can recognize these false narratives and you can free, be free from the burdens and fears of the world. Confident that when you seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, along with a faithful church body, he will meet all of your needs now and especially in the life to come. Let's pray. God, thank you for this beautiful story. Thousands of years ago, you created a world out of nothing and you put people in it to, to represent your holy, glorious beauty. You made us to have dominion over this world, to show how creative you are, how you organize things and bring life to them. We fell. We wandered. We sought to build our own kingdoms. Yet, you did not let us stay trapped in that curse. You sent your son to die for us and redeem that image that when we trust in him, we can become part of the story. The hero now works through us to overcome this world and lead many to righteousness. I pray you would empower the people of Redemption City Church to go into this world inspired by these words, shaped by these words, to live out this beautiful narrative of redemption and invite others to join us in telling this story with our whole lives. May Jesus get all the glory in these efforts. Amen.